0: Um, Jonathan is just a, a great guy, and just getting to know him just for a, a few minutes, I could tell that, that he, he's, he's passionate about what he does, and he's passionate about young people, and you know, one of the most important things, he's, he's a dad of three, and he's a great husband from what his wife has told me, um, you know, but uh, you could pay me for later for that, uh, Jonathan. Jonathan. But uh, Jonathan, he, he's just got a lot of stuff going. He's, he's got a lot of books he's going to be talking about. He specifically speaks to young people, especially the, the post-high school years. Uh, we know that you know a lot of statistics show us that, that you know, upwards of 50% of young people can and, and may disengage from their faith in, as they leave their high school years. And so it's a huge gap of opportunity and so uh, we really appreciate his passion, what God has called him to do. But uh, Jonathan is actually uh, the founder of, of Think Christianly. It's a website that's really um, there to help young people uh, with their uh, uh, their worldview and their thought process with regards to their faith. And he and then he's got a whole bunch of other stuff. He's got a Master's of Divinity through Biola. He's uh, he's also got. Uh, and I got I'm just gonna have to read this, Jonathan, because it's just too too long for me to to go by uh, memory here, but he's got a, also got a, a doctorate in worldview and cultural and cu- culture at talbot Talbot University. and just a lot of different things. But uh, I don't want to over focus on that. What I'd really like to focus on is the fact that him and I are actually wearing the same shoes today. So that that's really, Something I, I got ordained here. I think I think we got something. I think this is a long-lasting relationship uh, with you and me, Jonathan. So, hey, I don't want to take any more time, but uh, I want to ask Jonathan to come. Let's give him a warm welcome today.
1: Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I always try to connect with my audience, so I figure I was like, hey, what shoes does he wear? Let me go ahead and let me make that happen. That's great. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Well, I want to ask an important question to start us off, and it's this. Especially if you're a student in the room, it's this. What story do you want to tell about your college years? A few years from now, maybe two, five, ten, depending upon how long we're in college, right? Um, You're going to walk across that stage, and you'll have the opportunity to look back on your college years. And at some point, you'll sum all that up with maybe a few sentences, and you'll think about, how am I going to do that? But what story do you want to tell? Now, if we went around the room, there's lots of stories I'm sure people could tell about their college years. Don't worry, we're not going to do that uh, this morning, but what story do you want to tell? Because as I interact with students, usually it falls into kind of two buckets. It's either in the guilt, shame, and regret category of what could have been over my college years, or it's, you know what? I grew as a Christ follower. I was able to engage people. I was able to impact people. I was able to have a positive influence for Jesus during those years. And thinking about that now can make all the difference for you because the college years are full of opportunities and they're full of challenges. I don't know if you've ever seen Nick Walenda and this is him going across the Grand Canyon. I'll never do that. I'm terrified of heights, right? But he has a vantage point and opportunity that you and I don't have when you're looking straight down, right? But there's also dangers. See, there's, there's opportunities for influence during the college years, but there's also pitfalls and traps and things like that that can take you off course, and especially in your Christian life. And so the first question I wanna ask is this, is, is college Christian friendly? Now, I've got some thoughts on this. Um, I've been working with this generation for a long time. But actually, there was a study done by Harvard University and George Mason, and here's what they concluded. All right, here's some observations. One out of four college professors is a professing atheist or agnostic, a percentage much greater than the general population, which is about 5 to 7%. All right, so one in four of your professors will be either agnostic or atheist. All right? Second, only 6% of college professors said the Bible is the actual word of God, while 51% described it as an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. So it's a good book of fairy tales, perhaps. And then about 75% believe religion does not belong in public schools. And that doesn't mean, like, you shouldn't teach Christianity. It means you shouldn't really even talk about religion in general in the public schools, right? So that's the kind of climate in terms of the college experience that we're going into. What we're also seeing is what I call the tyranny of tolerance has descended on universities. It's happening all around the culture right now, but in colleges especially, there's now safe spaces created, trigger warnings, microaggressions, all these kind of things. And the evidence is pretty clear on this. That you know the Christian, uh, the campus, the college campus today is definitely not a safe space for Christians who take their Bible seriously. There's going to be opposition there. There's going to be challenge. That doesn't mean we don't go into them, but it does mean that we need to be aware of what's going on so we can be uh, prepared for the environment that's coming. Because it's not as though we don't know what's waiting for students or waiting for us as we head into that next season of life. Richard Rorty of Stanford University put it this way. He said, We try to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. So we are going to go right on trying to discredit you, parents, in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. All right, I wish he just wouldn't hold back and tell us what he really thinks, right? So that would just let it all out, right? But we need to be aware of this. It's not as though this is like a neutral space or a neutral ground. There's people actively trying to undermine and marginalize Christianity. Now, again, this is the cultural moment that God has placed us in. So we don't need to be afraid of that. He is still sovereign. And every generation of Christians has to figure out what it means to live at the intersection of faith and culture. And this is our cultural moment. You know, um, C.S. Lewis had his moment, Augustine, Tolkien, you know, Calvin, Luther, Wesley. You know, this is our moment with its particular opportunities and challenges, right? So the question that I want to ask is this, are students prepared for this environment? And as I speak at different places and high schools, high schools and colleges and churches and different things, and look at the research on this, the answer is a pretty clear, generally speaking, No. Whether, whichever study you look at, and we'll just take the law of averages, um, about 50% on average will disengage from their Christian faith during the college years. Now, some of those studies we haven't come back to to see if they're coming back, but there's a couple sociological factors that show that that's probably not going to be the case. One of those being is that people today and young people today are waiting longer and longer to get married. So where that used to be 23 or 24, 20 years ago, today it's 28, 29, 30 on the average years. What that means is, used to, people would, oh yeah, well when you get married, what do you do? We need to take our kids back to church. Well, guess what? That sociological trend is not happening near as much as it used to. So what does that mean? It means that there's, there's a whole generation of students, one out of two, who are disengaging from their Christian faith or even outright walking away. And that's just tragic because, again, not only for them and missing out on what God has for them, but if we're called to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, I know you guys had Greg Kokel here a couple weeks ago, right? And so if we're supposed to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ in this culture, then the students who are supposed to reach these other students in these next generation are not being prepared in that moment either. There was a massive study on the National Study in Youth and Religion, um, and uh, Creasy Dean put it this way. She said, the National Study of Youth and Religion reveals a theological fault line running underneath American churches, an adherence to do-good, feel-good spirituality that has little to do with the triune God of Christian tradition, or the Bible, and even less to do with loving Jesus Christ enough to follow him into the world. Because what she found was this, you know, and it was true of the other religions as well, but especially in the Christian conversations, it's like, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Be good, call on God if you need him. Kind of like a divine therapist and a butler. That's kind of the view of God, right? As a a whole. And so what we're seeing is a generation of almost Christians who are then meeting all of these challenges and the tyranny of tolerance and everything else, and they're simply not ready for that. So they'll either disengage because they think it's irrelevant, or they'll just be convinced that it's not true at all. Because at some point we all out outgrow fairy tales, don't we? Right. So that's the idea. And I have the opportunity to work with a lot of students at Impact 360 Institute where I work. And one of the things I had the opportunity to do with them, uh, even this past summer, was we, um, all the walls in our classroom are writable. So I get all the students. I'm like, I put this statement up. I said, following Jesus as a teenager today is a challenge because... And then I let them fill in the blank. And here's what they said. These are their own words. First, you sometimes feel like the only one. You know, they're like... It gets lonely being a Christian in today's world, if you're going to take Christianity seriously. Or this, when your beliefs are challenged, it is hard to defend your faith, right? And that's just the honesty of everything, right? Nobody wants to be, be friends with an extremist. I mean, that was, that was how one student put it. It was like, nobody wants to be friends with, a, with an extremist. What makes you an extremist today? taking the Bible seriously, wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to understand and engage people with truth and love and compassion and all that, just like Jesus did. But if you make a truth claim in today's culture, guess what? You're gonna be viewed as an extremist, all right? And then another one, because there are so many distractions. I mean, time and time again, they're like, it's just so distracting growing up in this culture. There's just dings and alerts and stuff Information everywhere all the time. And it just kind of swamps you, so it becomes difficult. The culture says we're being intolerant or judgmental. I mean, everybody, I mean, all of us want to be liked, right? So it, we don't want to be viewed as intolerant or judgmental. And sometimes there's a view that if you make a truth claim, then you're going to be viewed as unloving. And so we don't want to do that, but this is what they're saying. Or how about this one? I don't know if I can answer all their questions or objections. It's like, I don't know what to say if they ask me the tough questions. That's what these students are saying. Or this one, because we are afraid of what other people think. Now, we can all resonate with this, right? We all go through different levels of identity crisis, right? You do in middle school. I mean, middle school, man, those years, we just if we could hit fast forward, that'd be awesome. But is there a more awkward time on the planet than middle school? But then you go to high school, the same identity questions come back. And then college, and then in your career, and then newly married. So all these questions, we want to be liked by people, right? And that drives us, but we've got to figure out how to deal with it, all right? So that's the landscape, that's the challenge, and the opportunity for us. Because I'm actually encouraged about the next generation, but we must face the challenges honestly, all right? So I wanna quickly give you three approaches that don't work in light of what's going on at our cultural moment right now, all right? The first approach not to do, it's a dead end, is the don't think, just believe approach. Now I love this picture because this kid's holding his breath right here. And one of the things I'll do with our students is um, get a bunch of college students in the room, and it's it's a competition, which is great. And I'll, all right, who can hold their breath the longest? And so we have a room of 50 students stand up, and unless we have a Navy SEAL in the room, they're not going to last till about four minutes, right? One minute, two minute, and then they're about to pass out, and then they sit down, right? And then somebody wins, but eventually everyone's going to have to do what? Take a breath. So if our message to our young people and our students, if you're a student here, if the message to you is, just try really hard to believe Christianity. Some, by sheer force of willpower, will last longer than others. But if they're not convinced that it's actually true and real, guess what? At some point, they're gonna disengage. They're gonna walk away. They're gonna say, you know what? That was great, that was part of my childhood but it's not going with me into this next season. Um, John Cyril at a community college called UC Berkeley uh, put it this way. He says, Our problem is not that somehow we have failed to come up with a convincing proof of the existence of God or that the hypothesis of an afterlife remains in serious doubt. It is rather that in our deepest reflections, we cannot take such opinions seriously. When we encounter people who claim to believe such things, we may envy them the comfort and security they claim to derive from these beliefs. But at bottom, we remain convinced that either they have not heard the news or they are in the grip of faith. Interesting, right? Now, what does he say that he envies them? Comfort, right? It's okay, maybe that belief might make you comfortable or might give you some peace, fine, but I guess you haven't heard the news yet. Christianity is false. It's make-believe. And people are still in the grip of what? Faith. And this is really important. One of the things we have to help redefine for this generation is what, how faith and reason work together. Now, I flew out here on an airplane last night from Atlanta, and I'm really glad that the airplane had two wings on it, right? It always goes better on my flights when there's two wings on an airplane. And that's just the same way it works with Christianity and faith and reason. See, faith and reason go together, right? Faith is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. And then reason is kind of rational investigation. What's my reasons for believing this? So how do those work? You take a step of faith, and then you rationally investigate. A step of faith, you rationally investigate. You'll do that your entire life. But faith and reason in Christianity go together. Christianity is not based on blind faith, all right? It's really important that we don't approach this as try really hard to believe something and just kind of hold your breath. That's not gonna work. That's the first approach that won't work. The second approach that won't work is the Bible says so approach. Now, let me clarify what I mean by this. I affirm the full inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. I actually teach on this at master's level, college level, and high school level. So I'm all for this, but here's the issue. Our culture no longer speaks Bible. And guess what? For many people in our culture today, the Bible is no longer the answer. It's the question. And so if you're in a situation where, guess what? You're going to say, hey, look, why do you believe the Bible? Because it's God's word. Well, why is it God's word? Because the Bible's God's word. And then every answer I give you is the Bible says so. What's the important question, especially that students and teenagers need to know? why trust the Bible? Because if it's just, well, the Bible's the authority and you can't question it and everything else, there's a sense in which that's completely true at a certain point. But if you're just beginning this journey of faith, and all someone does whenever you have a tough question is, well, the Bible says, but what about the Bible itself? Is that questionable? Can you investigate that? What do I do with my doubts about that? And so, it's important, especially for students, that they're given space to question the Bible. Not to lead to skepticism, but to challenge a belief so that you can form a stronger faith as a result of it. Right? God's big enough for this. If you read the Psalms, David, he questioned a lot of things. And he told God about it. Paul, everybody else, John the Baptist. I mean, there's all sorts of people that are examples of this. So, but if we constantly just say the Bible says so, even in a well-meaning way, people are going to get, in our culture, guess what? If you put, why is Christianity true? Well, the Bible says so. They're like, well, I don't believe the Bible. So what else you got? Right? And that's why I love what you guys are doing, having an apologetic series here in August. What an awesome thing. You should be applauded for that. It's amazing. Right? So here's the third thing that won't work either. All right? And it's the bubble wrap strategy okay? I love this guy. I mean, he's like, mom, really? I mean, so he's in the bubble wrap. I do like the fact, though, that at least they gave him a Nerf bat, right? So it's, at least he's got something, right? But here's the tendency, and as a dad, I feel this. It's like big, scary culture with lots of stuff that's in, we're in a fallen world and everything else. So what's the tendency? Protect, wrap him up, quarantine them never let them go outside don't go online don't watch anything no youtube no nothing just go to church and home and don't talk to anyone in between right that's that that's that's kind of you know we can't do that now there's an appropriate age to protect there really is but as as people as young people get older we can't keep them from these questions forever And guess what? As a church family, as the body of Christ, as moms and dads, as people who care about them, we want to be the ones to introduce the hard questions. Why? Because then we can talk about it. Then we can actually be a part of that conversation. Because what I see happen so often is as a student will raise a tough question, maybe mom or dad will kind of freak out, over-respond and say, you should believe the Bible. And guess what they're not going to do next time they have a tough question? They're not going to ask you. They're gonna Google it. They're gonna ask a friend. They're gonna watch a YouTube video. And you're no longer a part of that conversation. And we wanna be a part of that conversation, right? So the bubble wrap strategy is not gonna work either, okay? So those are three dead ends. You can go ahead and save yourself a lot of time and just mark those off and you'll be good. So what are three things then that every student needs really to flourish during the college years, the high school years, college years, and beyond, which is the goal, that's what we're after. And here's the first thing that every student needs. It's a grown-up worldview. A grown-up worldview. Now, being a dad is fun. I love being a dad. And as a, as a, when, when the kids are young, you get these great books that teach them colors. It's like, hey, this is red. I mean, I, I mean I w- wouldn't be great if life was still that simple? It's like, okay, where are all the red things so I can group them together? Like fire trucks and strawberries and tomatoes and we're good. But here's the problem. You know... Our students today in high school are taking calculus, and they're taking AP history, and they're taking AP French, and German, and Latin, and AP English, and everything else. But yet their understanding of the Christian worldview is still about, oh, the coloring page level. Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he, Father Abraham. Thank you, right? Now, and then, you know, Daniel and Joseph, and, and they have this fragmented kind of coloring book Christianity. And one of two things happens. They out, they'll just simply outgrow it as irrelevant. Because it's like this. Sometimes it's not even malicious. Imagine, imagine this. I said, if you were about to go hiking into the, into the woods or into the canyon, and you can bring a backpack only of supplies, what are you going to put in that backpack? Only the things that you need and that will help you. And if, and if they've grown up to a point where they're 18 and they might have sentimental feelings about their Christian faith growing up, but they don't really think it does any work for them in the world, it doesn't explain things, guess what they're going to do? They're not going to put that in the backpack. They're not going to take that with them. And so they outgrow their faith in many times. And it doesn't have to be this way. Because Christianity is really a solid worldview with lots of good reasons why we believe what we believe. All right? So, and I found this. Young people are far more um, ca- capable than we give them credit for. I mean, I get it's, they're awesome. And we don't challenge them enough. You'd be, you'd be surprised the questions that middle schoolers will ask when you set them up in the right context. And then all the way up. And sometimes we treat them like, well, we can't ask those things here. No, we can't. All right? 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. There's so much here. But this is a command of God in Scripture that carries the same force as love, widows, and orphans. Both of those are come from the same word of God. And we're called to do both. We're called to love God with our minds. And we're called to love others and serve them. And we're called to seek the good of the city. Jeremiah reminds us of this. We're called to do these things. But we definitely need to have a grown-up faith where we know why we believe what we believe. And it comes around this question, is Christianity true? Students need to know, how would you answer this question? And do you think it's actually true and real? And there's a case that you can build. And the case that I like to build is simply four words. If you want to write these down, it's great. You can spend 20 seconds on each one of these year, words or three years on each one of these words, all right? Truth, God, Jesus, Bible. Truth, God, Jesus, Bible, all right? So let's start with truth. The first thing you have to understand is does truth exist, all right? And can you know it? Because knowledge is what authorizes us to act in reality, knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth is why you let some people put their hands in your mouth and not others, and they're called dentists, right? Because they have the relevant knowledge to do that, at least most of the time, hopefully, right? But knowledge is important, and there's a, there's a crisis of knowledge in our culture that says Christianity is not the kind of thing that you can know. Spiritual and moral truth don't exist, all right? Last year, Oxford um, Dictionary, their word of the year was post-truth. Time Magazine earlier this year, does truth exist? Now, in some ways, they're a little bit late to the party because this has been a trend for a long time, but this describes a situation where feelings are elevated and reasons are diminished in our culture because we now inhabit a post-truth culture. Um, You know... Stephen Colbert referred to this as truthiness. Truthiness became the word of the year in 2006. It's now in Webster's Dictionary, right? That's, that's culture for you, right? Now, how many of you guys have ever been to the Waffle House? Have been to the Waffle House? Have you guys heard of a Waffle House? All right, all right. Now, I worked at a Waffle House in, uh, for, three, for, a, for a full summer um, during college. Now, if you've ever been to the Waffle House, shining like a beacon in the night of, of waffly goodness, you go in, but you don't leave the Waffle House without taking a little bit of the Waffle House with you. Like it's just kind of this sheen of kind of greasy, waffly batter just kind of descends on you. And 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 like after three showers, you could probably get it off of you. You You just kind of smell like the Waffle House whenever you leave the Waffle House. That's just part of the experience. But that's kind of like what it's like to grow up in our culture today when it comes to truth. You're just kind of in culture and this truthiness, this idea that that truth is really about feeling and what I believe to be true and it's my own personal belief kind of stuff, that's everywhere and on everything. And again, I teach students who come up from Christian schools, private schools, home schools, public schools, and this is all over all of them because our culture is such, such a strong pull right now. There's such confusion about this. And so this is a major issue. Um, have the privilege to work with Impact 360 Institute and we're working with, a, we're working with the Barna Group and David Kenneman on a groundbreaking study on Gen Z right now on the next generation after millennials and um, one of the things I was we did some interviews in some different college campuses you can learn more about that at whoisgenz.com if you're interested in some of that um, coming out but here's, here's some of what we found uh, when we interacted with students in terms of what their views were on truth video
0: I don't particularly care anyway what anybody else's beliefs are. I'm more of a scientific person myself,
1: so I mean, just them now and uh, you know, go for it. So I mean, it could be uh, one truth, but I don't know. Maybe that's your sure. truth. I believe it's all up to like personal belief or whatever people decide to believe in. To be honest, you, mean, you don't have to have one universal thing. That's kind of any yeah.
0: Your own points, how you perceive it, how you in your own way perceive it's not Who's to say? In various places what we believe is true isn't true for other places and other cultures. So it really comes from what we decide as is true for us. There's a difference between truth and fact. So what one person holds to be true is different than another person, what what another person holds to be true, but that doesn't make either of them a fact.
1: They are <coughs> true because certain people hold them to be true. I feel like the rise right and wrongs kind of come from society. I think it's like how you feel. Like if you do something Uh, so I just hope he's not, God bless him, he's made in God's image. But either feelings or majority rules can determine what truth is. That's not good, right, for any of us. So when, when you look at this, there's just mass confusion about truth. And if we're going to get Christianity on the table and prepare our students to engage the world we live in, then they must understand what truth is and how to defend it and how to talk about it in a culture that increasingly thinks it doesn't apply to moral and spiritual issues all right so that's key second word is God well if truth exists and you can know it does God exist and are there reasons for it other than the Bible says so right you know because we're, we're in our culture and our culture worships at the altar of science and science is a good thing right the problem is naturalism, the worldview of naturalism. That's the issue. It's not science. Because science, actually the Judeo-Christian worldview gave us science, right? Because they believed if there is a rational mind, you'll be able to discuss, discover there should be laws and order that's predictable, right? Yet, you know, how many of you guys have heard of Stephen Hawking? Okay. Stephen Hawking will write a book called The Grand Design, and he'll come out and say, well, look, you know, because there's a law like gravity, the universe can and will bring itself into existence from nothing. And he'll give a very complicated equation with quantum mechanics and things like that about why that is the case. And that's what we're engaging. So other than us, well, but Genesis says, okay, well, what's your scientific answer in response to Stephen Hawking? How do we engage that conversation? Now, in that particular instance, just, you know, to give a quick response to that, you know, it's interesting. Stephen Hawking is a brilliant, brilliant man. On page five of the book, um, the, God, uh, the Grand Design, he says philosophy is dead, and then him and his co-author take about 20 to 25 minutes to make a very bad argument why philosophy is dead, which means he's not the best philosopher to understand some of these kind of things. And so what he does with the word nothing is he equivocates on the word nothing. Nothing is the absence of being. It means it doesn't exist. But what he means by nothing is a fluctuating vacuum of particles, Right? But that's not a nothing, that's a something, and that requires an explanation. But we need to be able to engage on these kind of questions and others. We need to be able to say, look, look, beginnings require beginners. There's really good evidence that the universe began to exist. Design requires a designer. Information always comes from the product, is the product of a rational mind. When we see DNA, it's information, right? Moral laws, right and wrong, those always come from a moral law giver. Okay, so there's good reasons why we believe what we believe and that God exists. All right, so truth and God, and then the question is, well, which God? Right, because there's lots of different claims of different gods and religions out there, right? But actually, two thousand years ago, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who actually lived, predicted his resurrection, as Michael Conner talked about, I think, last week, and he talked about um, made these claims to being the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. And you can actually test this and investigate it. Because 1 Corinthians fifteen six sixteen 16 says this, If Jesus is not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You, it doesn't matter how much faith you have if this historical event didn't happen. Right? That's one of the reasons why Christianity is not based on blind faith is because even people like Paul said that it's testable. So there's powerful reason, as you learned about last week on the resurrection, that helps you understand why Christianity is actually true. All right? So then the question then is, after Jesus, and kind of framing it there, is, well, what about the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? Can you understand what's going on there? Is it historically reliable? Um, can, has it been, is it just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? Is it like a bad version of the telephone game? And that's not true at all. Right? There's good reasons that support this. Um, I wrote a book called Questioning the Bible, 11 Major Challenges to the Bible's Authority, kind of going through each one of these major popular objections to the, to the historicity of the Bible. But in a way that doesn't beg the question, we have to make the case that truth exists, that God exists, that, <clears throat> that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and that the Bible can be trusted and is reliable. Right? And that's a way that doesn't beg the question. See, Christianity is also a worldview, too. And so C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So not only is there independent evidence for it, but then it becomes the lens and the light with which we see everything else in the world. We want to see as God sees, right? And that's what Christianity offers us. And students need to know that. And the last thing to have a grown-up worldview is the difference between literacy and fluency. Now, one day I want to go to Italy. My wife and I want to go. We want to enjoy all this great food and everything else. But why would you learn a language? Like, you know, you have to learn a language. You have to learn the endings and the vocab. But why do you do that? That's the literacy part. You just have to know some basics. But the reason you do that is so you can use it when you're actually there in the culture. You actually do something with it. And in Christianity, we don't, we must teach the, the basics of it, but we also want people and students in and the next generation, us as parents, to be fluent in Christianity so that whatever conversation we find ourselves in, we can actually bring those things to bear in that conversation, all right? So those are incredibly important for us to talk about, literacy versus fluency. Now, so that's the first thing that every student needs is a grown-up worldview. The second thing they need is wise relationships. Wise relationships. Sherry Turkle is an MIT professor. She's a psychologist. She wrote a book called Alone Together. And a long time ago, about 25 years ago, she was very optimistic about what social media would do. She's got a great TED talk on this as well if you want to look this up. But here's one of the conclusions that she came to. She was very optimistic about social media in the beginning. Now she's not so optimistic about it after studying it for 25 years at MIT. Here's what she said. These days, we expect more from technology than we expect from each other. Technology appeals to us where we are most vulnerable. We're lonely, but we're afraid of intimacy. We're afraid of truly being known. And so from social networks to sociable robots, we're designing technologies that will give us the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship, right? We turn to technology to help us feel connected in ways we can comfortably control, but we are not so comfortable, we are not so in control. See, because we're made in the image of God, we're created for relationship, but it's, relationships are hard and messy, Amen. And we're in these relationships, and then now there's this amplification device of social media that then gets, that helps us try to make sense of this as well. And so we're more disconnected than ever before in many ways. So here are the four wise relationships that every student needs and then all of us need. The first is this, is you have to, relationship with God is core, obviously. This is eternal life that you would know God, that you know Jesus whom be sent, Right. And then there's wise influences and wise relationship with parents. Wherever possible, you know, the book of Proverbs talks about how this is like a garland. The wise instruction of the father and mother are like a, wise, a garland or an ornament around your neck. It's, it's good for you. And students, let me let you in know on one quick thing. There's probably nobody else in the whole world who cares more for you than your parents. They want what's best for you. That doesn't mean they're perfect and they're not always going to get everything right. But they want what's best for you. So having that relationship so far as it's humanly possible, lean into the wisdom that they have for you. We also need mentors. We need people a little bit further down the road than we are who can see things clearly and that aren't our parents. Why? Because sometimes as parents, and I know this, I'm emotionally invested, right? They need input from someone who just sees as well, like here's where I'm at. Here's the situation. What input do you have? What example can I follow? Hebrews 13 talks about the imitation of those who taught you, that kind of idea, following in their footsteps. You know, so they need mentors. And then most importantly, during this season, they need wise relationships with friends. Proverbs thirteen twenty says this, He who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Life is very painful when you pick foolish friends because you get the collateral damage, especially during the college years, right? And during that season, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, those early 20s, there is no voice that's gonna be louder in your life than your friends because your parents automatically don't know anything anymore. Sometime in the future, maybe that'll come back and hopefully there, there you go, so we have that hope. But during that middle time, you want wise relationships where friends can lean into and speak these things. Second Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue faith, uh, righteousness, joy, and love alongside those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You need core, that core people to run with. Doesn't mean you can't have friends who are atheists and agnostics or, you know, Muslim or Mormon or whatever, but that inner core, they need to be following Jesus so that you can be running in the same direction because they're going to be the influencers for you. Wise relationships are pivotal. If you want to ask, people ask me all the time, how will I know if my son or daughter is going to be walking with Jesus after college? Like one of the most reliable indicators is show me their friends the first semester. And if you have wise friends, you're going to have wise relationships that will help guard you and give you guardrails to keep you um, on a good path, right? All right, so the third thing is gospel-centered identity. Every student needs gospel-centered identity. So they need a grown-up worldview, they need wise relationships, and they need a gospel-centered identity. You know, it's interesting. We live in a super hyper-connected um, culture um, where, where basically we've got about, oh, two, 2 billion people on Facebook now, Instagram 600 million, Twitter 300 million, Snapchat 300 million. And uh, Google said it expects 5 billion people to be connected to the Internet by 2020. There's 7 billion people on the planet. That's a lot of influence. That's a lot of information and media and messages heading our way. Marshall McLuhan said this, All media work us over completely. They are so pervasive in their personal and political, economic, aesthetic, psychological, moral, ethical, and social consequences that they leave no part of us untouched, unaffected, and unaltered. So if we are not careful we will allow all of this message, all these messages and information to shape our view of ourselves rather than allowing our creator or the gospel to appropriately shape our view of ourselves. There's an article, Is It Possible to Be Happy on Instagram? Um, it's a good question, right? Um, one, of the, one of the Instagram uh, kind, of, kind of celebrities, Asina O'Neill, a few years ago, uh, came to this conclusion. She closed her account. She said, I realized I didn't know myself without social media and without my physical appearance. So she just shut it down. She was done. Uh, Donna Freitas in The Happiness Effect put it this way. Given the amount of time young people spend on social media, and this is not, I mean, look, young people, and she uses this term, I think it's correct. A lot of people are critical and think our young people are narcissistic on this thing. They're not. They're pioneering a whole new reality that none of us have ever had to experience before. Every single moment of their lives has been documented, filmed, videoed, and everything else. Whereas, about, you know, older generations, that was just not, not the case. You could, make, you could make a stupid decision in college 20 years ago, and it didn't go viral. It just, oh, that was stupid. I hope nobody saw that. Now, that's not the case, right? So, I mean, again, so, but here's one of the things she observes. The pressure to appear happy online can become overwhelming, And this has been what I've heard from students as well. Adolescents learn early how important it is to everyone around them that they polish their online profiles to promote their accomplishments, popularity, and general well-being. They practice this nearly constantly in their online lives, and this has a tremendous effect on them, emotionally in their relationships and in their behavior on social media. For better or worse, students are becoming masters of, keyword, appearing happy. False self real self, the dissonance in between is why you see a whole bunch of depression, anxiety, and a lot of stuff in our generation at higher rates than any generation we've ever seen. And so we've got to get better at this because all of life isn't always happy, right? And social media expects that. But if we allow that to be the driver and likes and videos and shares and bullying and all this stuff that happens and comes with this new world we live in, if your identity is not rooted in Christ or as a a son or daughter of the king made in his image, then we're in trouble. But this is the good news of the gospel. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life, not because of the righteous things we had done. Our culture teaches us that we must perform to be loved at every turn. God whispers and yells through the scriptures to us, you do not have to perform to earn my love. It's a massively important thing that we must get at every stage of life, but especially as students. So what do we want for students? We want this for ourselves. It's this. Psalm says this, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. That's what we want. We want the next generation to flourish, so they can pass on the faith to the next generation and keep it going, that's what we want. So a lot of everything that we've talked about this morning, what are some next steps? How do we apply this in a way that helps us move forward? The first is this, Seneca put it this way, if you want a man to keep his head when crisis comes, you must give him some training before it comes. We've got to train the next generation information only is not enough information is better than nothing but information is not enough how do I know this well the SAT scores right we do what with SAT prep we buy courses and they have strategy and they have practice what a novel idea maybe we ought to do this for the Christian faith too strategy and practice one of the privileges I have is working with impact 360 we do this for two weeks Uh, Sean McDowell comes, I come, uh, Brett Kunkel, others. We talk about these things, about 60 of us from around the country. Impact360.org, this is immersion, we do training. There's other good training opportunities, but training is essential. All right, so take advantage of some of those. And lastly, I was only tipping, you know, scratching the surface on what I could cover. Here, a roadmap for this, my passion around this is called Welcome to College. It's a book, there's some out at the table. There's 41 short chapters on everything from doubt to God's existence, to dating, to how to study, to how to fight clean with roommates, and everything in between. And if you're a parent and want to understand the world of your young person, this is a great book to read. There's small group questions in the back. And so I hope that will be helpful for you. But the bottom line is this. We have to think differently about going into the next generation. And so we need God's grace to do that, but we need to be intentional like never before. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've given to us. Lord, we know there are challenges, but there's also opportunities. Lord, help us prepare the next generation. You've called us to prepare them. Help us to entrust ourselves to them. Help us to model for them what the Christian faith looks like and how we should uh, live that out. And Lord, help us be gracious, help us be understanding, help us to learn together what it means to be faithful to you and to follow Jesus at this cultural moment. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.